podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. Good to have you with us. Thanks for your ears and thanks for your nice comments over the last few weeks on the Cricket Badger Podcast. It's keeping me sane during the COVID-19 crisis. A really good podcast for you today. My guest is Harry Gurney. I'm not going to tell you too much about it because it is worth listening to and any introduction I do is just going to take away from the time I can give Harry Gurney to talk to you as well. Some great answers to the Cricket Badger 20 questions from the Nottinghamshire Pakes Bowler who has evolved himself over the last couple of years into a T20 franchise star around the globe. I've seen his tweets in the past and at times I've rolled my eyes back in my head. Question number 20, I anticipate a bit of a ding-dong on the future of cricket. Thanks as always to tvsportsblog.com for their sponsorship of the Cricket Badger podcast. Give them a follow at tvsportsblog on Twitter. And as you know, I've been dedicating the various editions of the Cricket Badger podcast through the coronavirus crisis to various different sectors of the community that are affected by it we're all affected by it but this one goes out to the owners of pubs and restaurants and theatres who are all shut down at the moment they're worried about what's going to happen over the next few weeks and months this one is to them and that includes harry gurney who is as you know in business with stuart broads and another colleague running the tap and run near melton mowbray which as we'll find out in a second is also shut down during the covid19 pandemic so enough of me rabbiting on let's get across to harry gurney he answers the cricket badger 20 questions he answers them brilliantly here he is on this edition of the cricket badger podcast it's that badger style Harry, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, James. How are you? Not so bad at all. I'm in a one-bedroom flat in Bradford. I'm looking at the sunshine outside the window, trying to time my one-hour walk today. Yeah, I've, I've seen in the in the press, Harry, I mean, obviously, it's, it's quite well documented. You're in business with Stuart Broad and, and a, another colleague with a pub just outside Melton Mowbray, isn't it? You, you had to shut that down, obviously. For a while, you were you were running it as a bit of a kind of village store, I guess, is, is, is one way of putting it. But you've had, to, you've had to stop that now as well. Yeah, we have, not because it wasn't well supported because it was we just had to make the tough decision to do so just because we had to furlough all the staff in order to secure the future of the company really so it was a real shame but unfortunately it was sort of out of our hands really and what does a cricketer do at the moment with no cricket to play i mean you've got obviously i mean we'll get on to your t20 expertise and your franchises and and various things in in just a moment but you'll have been poised to to start wouldn't you yeah the sun's shining it should be cricket what does what do you do at the moment i think everyone's different aren't they i'd imagine a lot of the guys in their sort of first half of their career are busy playing cricket in the garden and longing to be out there playing and focusing on that kind of stuff really and I guess sitting on their Xboxes or whatever and I guess the guys that are a little bit older such as myself well I can only speak for myself but I'm certainly using it as a bit of an enforced sabbatical from the game and taking it as an opportunity to work on a few things in the background on myself personally my development for life after cricket but also my business that I've got so I've kept myself pretty busy to be honest and got quite into my running as well taking up running in order to a keep fit for for cricket purposes but 
B, keep the uh, keep the belly up because I keep reaching <laughs> for a wine bottle every five minutes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm struggling to do that. I had a, a sports psychologist on the podcast a few weeks ago, right at the start of lockdown, and he said, you know, the, the way to deal with it is to see it as an opportunity, to see it as a chance to do some of the things that you've maybe not had time to do in the in the past because you've been so busy. That that sounds to me how you're tackling it. That's exactly how I'm tackling it. You know, the days are absolutely flying by. I, I have to confess, I'm actually quite enjoying it because I'm, you know, unfortunately, I've got a little garden. I live in a village. We can go out for a walk around the village. I can go for a run. I've got a two and a half year old. He keeps me busy. And as I say, I'm working on personal development and my business as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of quite enjoying it, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's going to be re- very weird when lockdown finishes because we're all going to kind of go outside and with a bit of trepidation, I, I guess, at the moment. Yeah, it might take a few days to adapt. Yeah, I mean, look, it's. Uh, I say I'm enjoying it, but everyone would agree that we're we're looking forward to it being over, but only when it's safe for it to be over. You know? Well, Harry, you're taking on the Cricket Badger 20 questions today. Um, I've got them in front of me. I know you've seen them already as well. We'll start with question number one, which I always think is the, the probably the best place to start. If not a cricketer, yeah. where would life have taken you? I would imagine I would probably be in financial services in London. Um, I've got an economics degree. Finance is an area that's always interested me. A lot of my peers from school and university have ended up in London. And I've, I've often felt that in another life, I'd have been down there with them as well, actually. So despite the fact that I wouldn't change anything for the world, I've always sort of felt like I've missed out on that that London lifestyle and working down there. Yeah, that's probably what I'd be doing if I wasn't quicker. But obviously a publican, as we've said, you've got the pub, the tap and run just outside Melton Mowbray. And I've done a little bit of background reading on you. And you, you've had a little bit of a foray into professional poker as well, didn't you? Yeah, so I used to, towards the back end of school and then through my university days, I played a huge amount of poker and I had a fair amount of success, read a lot of books, had some coaching and all that kind of stuff and had a fair amount of success, won quite a few tournaments and your records are, uh, or at the time, the records were available, publicly available, your poker records were publicly available and I applied for a poker sponsorship in 2008, late 2008, with a company called Badbeat, I think it was. And I went through an interview process and they observed me playing and obviously they'd seen my record and they offered that sponsorship. And so, yeah, I had sort of three months where I was playing a lot of poker. They were funding it, bankrolling it, and we would just split the profits. But unfortunately, there was never any profit at the end of a calendar month. And that's why I got flicked. So you're not a, a great poker player then? Well, I wasn't in those three months. Um, <laughs> I like to think I'm, uh, I'm half decent. I do. I mean, they wouldn't have signed me if they... I didn't think that, that I could play. And having played a lot of poker, I do credit Texas Holden for a lot of my decision-making in life when it comes to either on a cricket field or in business as well. I think the ability to make clear clinical decisions under pressure, I think is something that poker teaches you. Who has been the biggest influence on your career? Uh, I would say probably one of two people, Andrew McDonald or Mick Newell. Macca came over to Leicestershire and essentially plucked me out the second team, plucked me out the net and put me in the first team for the T20. Um, I think, I don't know whether he was captain or just a senior player or whatever. Anyway, I bowled him in the next one day and he taught them into playing me and that was really when my career started picking up and I'll never forget the, the following season we'd signed Hoggy, Matthew Hoggard. We had a game against Northampton at, at Grace Road and Hoggy had essentially come to me 10 minutes before the toss and said I was dropped. I mean, as it, as it worked out, I, he, he was basically coming into the team for me which at the time I thought was probably the wrong decision uh, because even then, early on in my career, I felt like I was, a, I was a better T20 bowler than him. A couple of minutes after telling me, Claude Henderson and Nico found out and went and grabbed Hoggy and took him to one side. They had an animated conversation and cut a long story short, Hoggy came back over and said, change of plan, you play him. Went into the team that night and I don't think I've ever felt under such pressure, to be honest, because for Nico and, and Claude to put such faith in me there to go to the captain and 
talk me back into the team so close to the toss um, was great, but I really wanted to repay that faith. And I can't remember what the figures were, but I know I had a decent game and um, the rest sort of history, I guess. And then I moved, when I moved on to not, when Mick signed me from Leicestershire, I think probably would have surprised a few people around the country. I don't think a lot of coaches would have signed me. I don't think a lot of people around the country would have necessarily expected Nottinghamshire to have come in and sign me. So I really appreciate the fact that he saw something in me and backed me. And Mick made me mentally tougher because he taught me one of what now my life mantras really that is sounds a bit harsh but nobody cares I used to be a bit of an excuse maker and I think Mick sort of hammered into me from an early stage at, at not nobody really cares you might be bowling uphill into the wind you might not be having any luck nobody cares crack on get on with it that's pretty good advice isn't it in in, in many forms it of is. life yeah a lot of people kind of like blame other people or, or, or make make excuses mm. we've got a massive blame culture and it's one of my pet hates people making excuses or looking for looking for blame you know and I often say it to my, my friends and family, you know, nobody cares. Just remember that. Nobody cares. You've got to do it yourself. It sounds a little bit harsh. And of course, your closest friends and family do care about you. But ultimately, you've got to look after yourself in this world and, and do things for yourself. And no point moaning and whinging. If I could take you back to one day in your career, the, the best moment in your career, which day would you like to take, uh, have another crack at and enjoy again? Well, I think being picked up in the IPL auction and then playing in that man of the match on debut winning the Big Bash. I mean, going to the Big Bash is arguably a better achievement than international selection because there are only 16 slots, overseas slots available in the BBL from the whole of the world, you know, outside of Australia. So that's something I'm proud of. And anytime you win a trophy, you know, T20 final day 2017, winning the T20 for knots and having a, a really good day myself was, was high. But I can't really look past the day I first got picked for England. And yeah, I was in Melbourne, actually. I'd been a couple of days before to bowl at the Melbourne Stars. I remember Luke Wright was, was playing for them at the time. And I can remember him saying to me, oh, I reckon you're going to be in the squad. I think it had been on my radar, but I never really imagined that it would, that it would happen. And anyway, my phone rang a couple of days later. And, and so it was. I, was. I was off to the Caribbean. So I'd only been in Melbourne about 10 days and I had to fly home, but for good reason. You were involved with England for, for just one year, really, wasn't it? 2014. Um, you played was it about a total of about 10 one-day games with England. Did, did you feel like there was more to come from you? Because you, kind of, you were sawn off, really, weren't you, and never came back in again? Yeah, I mean, I first got picked by Jeff Miller and Ashley Giles, who were chairman of selectors and coach, when I first got picked for that West Indies tour. And then I was involved for the rest of that calendar year, 2014, as you say, under uh, then Pete Moores. Yeah, I mean, I played 10 ODIs and two T20s. I think, you know, I'm not deluded or bitter. I could understand why I got dropped from the ODI team. And looking at how well they've done since, I don't think I can have any complaints particularly. But the T20, the England T20 team, I think the dropping there probably was quite harsh. I've played two games for England in T20, done really well in both of them. And my record at domestic level now all, all around the world sort of speaks for itself. So I think... I might have played more T20 games for England in, a, in another life, but um, no huge amount of bitter feeling with towards my ODI dropping. And the T20 franchise stuff came to you, it almost came to you overnight, didn't it? You'd gone from not playing any to being picked up by pretty much everybody. And I've seen a, a quote from you where you said it was um, a comment somebody made ahead of a T20 game at Headingley, was it? And then you played quite well, bowled very economically at the death, and all of a sudden your phone started ringing. Yeah, that was it. It, it was... For a number of years, I've been a really consistent performer in, in the blast and I'm one of the top wicket takers of all time. So I felt that I was a little bit unlucky to have not had further recognition. But then again, I sort of blame myself because I don't think I ever really sought it out enough. And then I made a decision in 2018 that I was going to really 
start to go after it. And that night up at Headingley, it was the last group game of the Blast. I think it was 2018. And Dan Christian went out to the toss and described me as the best death bowler in the world. It was a televised game. And as I said before, I'm sure there were lots of people sat at home laughing and um, the commentators were probably making jokes about it. But whether you agree with it or not, there's some unbelievable death bowl about it. Whether you agree with it or not, I guess it does draw attention to me as a bowler. And then that same night, I bowled the last over against Kane Williamson and, and Brazy, and it went for one run off the bat. And it was genuinely sort of within six weeks of that, really, I had... T10 contract, uh, a big bash contract, a PSL contract, and an IPL contract. So that sort of really felt like a, a tipping point that night up in Yorkshire. And how, how would you compare? And obviously, we know the T20 blast. We've seen the other franchise tournaments played around the world. How would you compare the the various countries and how they they put on the shorter format? Which is your favourite? I guess is the question. Um, it's a really tough one to answer. That I mean, I love playing T20 cricket in England. You know, in the height of summer in this country, a Friday night at Trent Bridge packed to the rafters and, and playing a blast game is, is a great experience. But at the same time, you're going and playing particularly the IPL and the and the Big Bash, two competitions that I'd admired from afar for so long. To get an opportunity to go and play over there was just amazing, really. And such dis- different atmospheres. Australia, the grounds are all, you know, having being used to little quaint county grounds, then go over to Australia and every ground is a stadium. You drive into what feels like a multi-storey car park and then you walk out onto this oasis of, of cricket pitch and um, big crowds and they put on a really good show over there and certainly winning the big bash with the Renegades is a is a career highlight of mine then the IPL is sort of the pinnacle really of the domestic game I would say uh, of any format and to go and play in that competition in front of 70,000 70 odd thousand people week in week out in Eden Gardens was again just something that you have to pinch yourself sometimes when you think that you've done it. I would imagine prior to 2018, you could walk through an airport in India or you could walk through anywhere in India and, and be fairly anonymous. Has that changed since you've been playing in the IPL? Because they're rather mad on the cricket over there, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's a little bit like footballers over here, I guess. You know, you, you, when you're going through the airport, particularly in, with the rest of the team, it's um, it's it's certainly an interesting experience. A little bit like I, I used to, uh, I was walking through one airport with Shubman Gill, who's one of the, the young Indian stars. I liken it to being like walking through an airport with Harry Styles in England because um, <laughs> there were just screaming, screaming schoolgirls everywhere wherever he walked. But um, the IPL is certainly another notch above anything anywhere else. And the PSL, really, I would say, you know, those, those Asian, those subcontinent countries, they, they're just absolutely cricket mad and they see the cricketers as, as real superstars, don't they? It's not just playing in these tournaments as well. You, you get decent cash. I mean, I'm not asking you to tell me how much you've got in the bank, but I'd imagine it's a, a pretty decent boost to a cricketer in his 30s who's thinking about what to do next with his life. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's certainly a consideration. When you when I was making the decision to retire from Red Bull cricket, I'm quite an analytical boat, you know, so I, I start weighing up the pros and cons, and a lot of the pros and cons are around finances for me. And up until the point I made the decision to retire from Red Bull cricket, I essentially wasn't able to afford to because of the pay cut that I knew that I was going to take. So my pay dropped by more than half from Nottinghamshire when I retired from Red Bull cricket. But having got to the stage where I had a contract in all of these overseas competitions, I knew that I would still be earning more. And I guess more than that, it freed me up in the early part and the late part of the English summer to be able to go and play another competition like the Caribbean Premier League, which I subsequently went and did. I wouldn't have been available to go and play in that. And I ended up winning that with the Barbados Trident. And then also you throw into the mix the compensation scheme. You know, you have to, with this compensation scheme as a county cricketer, you have to pay back a fair chunk of your salary if you want to go and play in the IPL. You are contracted for the, the county championship at the start of the season. So actually that significant pay cut I took with Knotts ended up not being as big a pay cut as it looked because it meant that I didn't have to pay the compensation, if you know what I mean. So the net difference wasn't quite as dramatic. So that's 
actually a policy which might shoot counters in the foot a little bit, a little bit counterintuitive. If I was to take you back to a day in your career that you certainly want to want to go back to again, which one would that be? A bad day? Um, I think probably being released by last year. I think it was 2008. I'd been through Leeds University, the Leeds Bradford uh, UCCE from 05, 06, 07. 08 was my first full season back at, at Leicester. And um, I got released at the end of that season. You know, Phil Whittaker sat me down and said, you know, we're not offering a new contract. We want you to go away to South Africa this winter and we want you to come back on trial next year and we'll think about whether we can offer you a new contract. So I can remember at the time being quite annoyed and angry with, with Leicestershire and thought they were taking taking the mick really. And so I just decided to part company with them. Um, and it was at that time that the poker started taking off. Then later that winter, I was approached again by David Smith, the chief executive of Leicester, um, and went in for a chat with him and cut a long story short. I said, right, sod it. No one else, no other counties wanted to be queuing up to sign me. So I'll go to Poch in South Africa for three months, which I did. And then I came back on trial um, for sort of April, May. And then I think I signed again in June of 2009. So, yeah, not many people know that story, but I was actually released by Leicestershire at the end of 2008. During that time, Harry, did, did you think that's probably cricket finish for me? Was, was there any, any part of you thought, I'm, I need to find something else to do? Yeah, definitely. Particularly when, you know, I, I rung around some other counties and there was some interest, but it, the interest was basically, oh yeah, come in for a net if you like, um, rather than here's a contract. So you start to think to yourself, well, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it's all over or do I swallow my pride and, and go back to Leicestershire and, and try and make it again and try and get another contract? So. That's the route I decided to go down. Obviously, I'm glad I did. The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look. And give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Who was your cricket hero when you were a kid? Was there a poster on the wall, on Harry Gurney's bedroom wall, that was uh, the player that inspired you? No, I've not got any cricket heroes, really. I don't know how common that is, but no, I mean, I just fell completely in love with the game. I can remember being at primary school and my primary school used to have an association with the Yorkshire Bank. They used to come in on a Friday and you'd bring your, your coins in and you'd set up a little current account and you'd save it. I think I'd save about 300 quid. And um, I can remember going to one net session for Loughborough Town and going home and saying, I want to clear out that bank account and buy a load of cricket kit. And my brothers, I've got five brothers, and my brothers and my parents all thought I was mad and I'd never carry on playing and it was a waste of money, but I was adamant. So so I did. So I bought, bought 300 quid's worth of cricket kit from a, from a local shop called Talent Cricket in Loughborough. And yeah, just completely obsessed with everything about it. You know, the kit, the bats, the game itself, watching it on TV, playing it for hours on end on the drive or in the garden. And, um, I think that's probably something that every eventual uh, pro cricketer has in common and a lot of people who don't end up making it as pros you know just that real love of the game from a very early age he's telling that story reminds me of a guy I used to work with who when he was quite young he, he wanted to take up golf and thought he was going to be fantastic at golf and he'd spent about £2,000 I think on joining a golf club buying the, buying a really good set of golf clubs I think he played twice and that was it really yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so sometimes it works yeah, sometimes well, it doesn't yeah, exactly. My my brothers and parents are probably right to assume that I didn't get the money to be fair, but um, as it turned out, it wasn't. If you could trade lives, Harry Gurney, with any current cricketer for a day, live in their skin, experience what it's like to play like them and be them for twenty four hours, who would you choose? Difficult one. I mean, I wouldn't. I genuinely wouldn't swap lives with anyone. You know, I love I love my life. I'm really proud of what I've done, and I'm really excited about what the rest of my career holds. And then, 
the rest of my future outside the game. I'm a big believer that there is a huge amount of life after cricket and outside of cricket as well. And I'm quite looking forward to getting out of the bubble. Uh, but if you force me to pick a cricketer, other than any top six batsmen, I'd love to know what it feels like to be able to bat. Probably Rashid Khan, just because it just appears so easy for him. He's so dominant. He's so far above everyone else. He's one of those once-in-a-generation bowlers like Muralithra and Orwan, I guess. It's just too good. And uh, it would love, be lovely to walk out onto a pitch knowing that it's going to feel so easy. Although I'm sure if you had Rashid on your show, he would argue that it never feels easy. <laughs> You're in charge of world cricket for the day. You can change one thing. What's the what's the one thing you'd change to make cricket better? There's the name Harry Gurney on the big boss's door. What are you going to do? Abolish the toss. I think the away captain should pick whether he wants to bat or bowl in all forms of cricket everywhere in the world. I think it would level the playing field. Um, I think it would stop home groundsmen doctoring pitches to suit the home team. I know that's one of the intricacies that people like about it, but I think it's going to lead to better cricket wickets all around the world. If you know as the home groundsman that the away captain can turn up and do what he wants, you're just going to be incentivized to produce as good a pitch as you possibly can. England don't win in India. Australia don't win in India. And India rarely win in England or Australia. You level that playing field. You know, if, you, if England turn up at Mumbai knowing that they can have that, that affects the mindset of India and the uh, preparation of the pitch going into it. So, yeah, abolish the toss. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the features, isn't it, of modern day international cricket, certainly, that you, you struggle away from home when you win at home. That's, that's kind of the way yeah. it goes. Yeah. So, yeah, the toss yeah. would certainly play a part. If you were starting your career again and you could give advice to the young Harry Gurney who's just got his new kit and he's bright-eyed and looking forward to a, a life in cricket, what would you tell him? What, is there anything you'd do differently? I think I would be more forceful in my early career around my physical training. As I've developed and got older, I've, I've learned, as every cricketer does, what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And I think I was a little bit naive and, and just assumed that everything that was told to me upon high was accurate and that's what I had to do and that's what everyone did and I think actually it's more important to find what works for you as soon as you can I think cricket is at a point now where we probably understand more than ever about the physical requirements which is great and I think we need that but I do think that the balance is wrong I I saw on Twitter the other day an interview with Thierry Henry and uh, Gary Neville was talking about his upper body strength and asking him what he did in the gym and he just said I never went in the gym if I was in the gym I wasn't on the football pitch practicing and there are elements of that I certainly agree with. To be a fast bowler, for example, in cricket, you do need an element of fitness and robustness and strength because it's quite a unnatural action. And also, you know, a footballer probably obtains a lot of their fitness from actually playing, whereas as a bowler, you can't run in a bowl all day because you'd end up with a stress fracture. So you have to replicate some of your workload via other ways. But the more I've observed the best all over the world, I've realized you have to find what works for you because... Also, if you love doing something or you enjoy doing something, you're going to do it better and more effectively anyway rather than just being told to go and pick up that bar over there because it's going to be good for you. You know, Dale Stain, he just straps on his running boots and just goes out running. Alex Hales plays a huge amount of tennis to keep himself fit. At the age of 18 to 23, I was stood on a squat rack doing Olympic lifting and, and looking back, it was a complete waste of time. <laughs> yeah, I don't want this question that's, that's to sound rude, but I mean, your action isn't the classical sideways on cricket bowling no. action. Were there times where coaches got in your ear and said, right, we need to change this, do that, do the other? I've, I've, I've talked to quite a few people just recently on the podcast about the likes of Steve Smith, who've obviously at some stage mm. in a cricket net have said, no, I'm doing it this way. I'm going to, mm. this is how I play. Yeah, I mean, there's a similar story for me, I think. Around about 2000, probably 2000, actually. Yeah, around about 2000. 
Lloyd turned the bowling coach at not at the time it was really in vogue to essentially get every bowler bowling like Bretley, loading up with their you know, their bowling hands down by the waist, um, in their bound or in their coil, um, and their other arm high above their head. And there was a period of a few months where where I was doing that with Lloyd and I think I spent the winter doing it and went back to play for Loughborough Town the following year and I was bowling one day and I remember never forget a wicket keeper, a guy called Charlie Bloor who he played a bit of county second team when he was younger. And he came to me and said, look, it's totally up to you. But he said, I think you're half a bowler now with that action than you were before. So I made the decision that night to stick with what works for me and to go back to my natural action. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made because, you know, I've lost count of the amount of people I've seen come and go from the game who are bowlers who just become too robotic because they listen too much to coaches. And it's a dangerous road to go down, I think. You know, I've, I am stubborn and I accept that, but I think... I think you've got to find your way and stick to it. And that comes to your physical training that I've already touched on, but also your way of doing things. I'd imagine you spent a lot of time with your variations for the T20 format and making yourself as hard as possible to to read. But does a a slightly less than conventional action probably make it harder to pick you as well? Do you think that's an advantage actually in T20? Yeah, I think it does. I think it adds an element of disguise. You know, you, you listen to batsmen talk and they talk about bowlers who are nice to face in terms of having a nice clean action and bowlers that aren't so nice in terms of having a horrible gangly action and I guess I'm in the latter category so yeah I think it probably does help me to an extent. Yeah you, you mentioned that I mean that I've asked that question of a few people who's the worst bowler to face and more often than not people say somebody like Lassith Malinga who has got a very strange action hasn't he he's slingy and it comes from around the back and people can't pick him that's why he's had so much yeah. success. Yeah exactly more recently someone like a Bumrah you know that action is um, quite unorthodox as well and Again, those two are actions that were born in the subcontinent. I think Malingas was born on the beaches of Gaul, skidding a ball off the off the sand, so he had to have a low arm. And in this country, would they have been? Would it have been coached out of them? Would that natural bowling action have been coached out of them? Probably. Whether or not they'd have had the the strength to turn around and said, "Well, no, I'm going to stick with it." I don't know, but I can't remember ever seeing many English bowlers with an action like those two. <laughs> no. Um, right, we're on to the other questions now. There's, some of these can be cricket answers if you want them to be, but they can be one-word answers. You can go into as much depth as you want. But the first one is rock stars apparently want to be sportsmen. Sportsmen all want to be rock stars. Everybody seems to want to be famous in a different walk of life. If you could have been, what would you have chosen to be famous in? I mean, I love my music. I play the piano. Um, I really admire good musicians. Probably if I could be famous in another field, I guess, probably the business world. I aspire eventually to be better known respected and maybe influential in the world of business than I am in cricket. If you could meet anybody, living or dead, who would you like to meet? Take for a pint in your pub and have a chat with. Barack Obama. That's a good one. Yeah, it's just probably the person in the world that I sort of admire the most in terms of sort of intellect, vision, humility. Yeah, Obama. He's a big listener of the Cricket Badger podcast, is Barack Obama. So is there, is there a free pint behind the bar at the Tappan Room? There is, yeah. Just wanted to just, yeah, how, how are you doing, Barrett? Hope you're enjoying it. Who would play you in Harry Gooney the movie? Um, I don't think there will ever be a movie about me because, well, put it this way, if there was a movie about me, the budget would be so small <laughs> that, the person, that the person playing me would be completely unknown. So, I don't know, probably probably one of the extras from a, from a pantomime at Loughborough Town Hall. <laughs> What's the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? In a cricket environment. Any environment, but I mean, I, I, in in the cricket environment, are you are you a nervous kind of personality? Do you get the the old butterflies before you come on to bowl, or do you take it in your stride? No, I'm normally pretty calm by then. I think you get normal butterflies on the morning of a T20 game or any game, but particularly a big, you know, a T20, you know, maybe a uh, an RPL game or a, a quarter final in the blast or that kind of stuff. Pretty natural to 
have butterflies that day and struggle to get your breakfast down or whatever. But yeah, so the most recent probably I've been recently, oh God, I can't remember, maybe the last big T20 match I played. But I different early in your career, you get genuine sort of nerves. But by the time you're my age, it, it's more sort of butterflies and anticipation, really. The most nervous I've ever been in my life, hands down, was before my driving test. Really? Did oh you, God, I hated it. And did you pass? Well, yeah, third time. <laughs> yeah, I, I passed third time as well. I've been told that the best drivers pass third time. Yeah, I would agree with that. Bucket list. Things to do before you die. What would be the top item on your bucket list? Cool. Things to do before I die. Uh, play golf at Augusta. There you go. I don't even know if it's possible, but we'll go with that. That's a good one. Amen corner. All the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. But it might, it might take you a while. You'll lose a few balls on that par three. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd do well to go around in under 200, I reckon. <laughs> Are you a morning or a night person? Uh, morning person these days. I think I was naturally a night person, but I've sort of trained myself to be a morning person. I like to try and get up at six, half six, and get some stuff done sort of before breakfast. On a scale of one to ten, ten's the fonds, the height of call. Where would you put yourself on that scale? One, probably. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, re- I've recently arrived at a point where definitely now practicality of an outfit certainly outweighs the look. Um, and that's when you know you're really uncool and getting old, isn't it? Look around the Notts change room at people like Tom Moores and Luke Wood and look at how they dress and you realise you're really, really not cool. Um, <laughs> but actually quite happy about it. I mean, they walk around in 600 quid trainers that make them look like they're correcting some sort of orthopaedic foot condition. But yeah, one out of ten. And how's the lockdown hair going? Have you have you resorted to cutting your own yet? No, not yet, actually. I was quite lucky. I, I got my hair cut. I think it was within 48 hours of the lockdown commencing. I just timed it. Complete coincidence. But yeah, I'm... Uh, doing all right at the moment i've got one of those little kind of razor things that i kind of trim my struggling beard with and i've, I've started to kind of cut it around the edges with that and i've got no idea <laughs> yeah. what the back looks like it's it's, you know, it's quite scary anybody that sees me from the back at the moment probably is in for a fright yeah i think i've survived until the, is it the 7th of may or whatever they've said but and much longer than that i think i might start to uh, i might have to get the razor out if you had access to a time machine you can go forwards or backwards where would you uh, like to drive it to to uh, see what it was like in those days I would go forward uh, to about 30 years, probably. I don't think I'd want to know too much about my destiny or my family, because if I went forward to 2050 and I was dead, that would be disappointing. But I would love to be interested to see you know, what the world is like, how technology has advanced, what, what the way of life is, what trends are. You know, I think we're in the middle of a sort of technological and automation revolution at the moment, and um, to see what that's progressed to by 2050, what you know, what what a robot's doing, what's VR like, all that kind of stuff would be would be fascinating. But um, I mean, that's a tough one to answer because it'd be really cool to go back, wouldn't it, as well to world wars or even medieval times as well. It, it would be fascinating to go forwards, though. I mean, over the last 20, 25 years, if you think about how even just kind of televisions and mobile phones and how technology has advanced in that period, what things are going to be like in 25 years' time is kind of bewildering and quite scary, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. But I don't find it scary. I find it exciting. Yeah. There's, I, there's been a few people, Harry, that have said they'd, they'd like to go forward, say, 20, 25 years to see if Red Bull cricket has survived or something like that. I mean, as somebody who is playing T20 franchise cricket and obviously playing it very well and, and making a decent living out of it at the moment, are you, are you, are you protective of the Red Bull stuff too? Um, I wouldn't say I'm protective of the Red Bull stuff. I think I've got some quite strong opinions about the future of the game. And funnily enough, that is probably my, I think, the last question that you're going to ask me about if I'd been picking the questions, what would I have asked myself to get to get a great answer? I think probably, certainly when it comes to social media, what I'm 
most known for are probably being a little bit outspoken in my views on the future of the game. Do you want me to jump forward to that now, or should we leave it till the end? Let, let's let's put that one on hold. We'll we'll go through the okay. questions, and we'll we'll uh, that's a bit of a trailer. It's one of those teasers. They, they call it a teaser in radio. Don't they? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, okay. If you could live anywhere in the world, and you're seeing a lot of the world at the moment, so you can answer this with a, a degree of authority, where would you choose to put uh, put your roots down? Sydney, Australia, probably Cronulla, more specifically, or one of those sort of suburbs. I first went to Australia in 2012, 13. I've been several, I've been lucky enough to, be, to have been several times since. I went to play grade cricket for a team called Bankstown, and I lived in a place called Cronulla, which is sort of half an hour away from Bankstown on the coast, and just fell in love with the place immediately. The lifestyle, the coffee culture, the surfing, the climate. Um, it's just an amazing place to live. And I think it, I find it frustrating these days that so many youngsters don't go away anymore. And I think it's partly to do with um, the counties and the ECB probably being too prescriptive about what youngsters do with their winters. Because without a shadow of doubt, going to Sydney that winter is the best thing I've ever done for my career in a winter, without a shadow of doubt. I came home and had my best ever season. And it's funny, I've already touched on my thoughts on, on gym stuff, but I remember when before I was going, Mick Newell said to me, you know, have you got a gym membership sorted? Yeah, 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 I've got a gym membership sorted, Mick. And I got there and I thought, right, sod that, I'm going to do what I want to do this winter. <laughs> I've had years of doing what I'm told. So I went for a run, for a 5K run, three times a week. After every run, I'd do as many sit-ups as I could, as many push-ups as I could, and that was literally it. I didn't go near a gym. And I came home and had my best ever season, took 70-odd wickets across the formats and, and was pretty much injury-free. So, yeah, anyway, I digress. Sydney, Cronulla. Does Mick Newell know that full story? I don't know if he does, actually. But hey. I'd be happy to tell him now. I'm old, I'm old enough and I'm good enough. <laughs> I, I, have you been one of those? I'm, I, I can remember I used to work for Yorkshire, Harry, and we, we used to go to Barbados on pre-season trips and Abu Dhabi and stuff. Mm. And I used to like to get out and, and explore and see and see things, whereas a lot of the youngsters sit around a pool and sit on the beach and hardly go anywhere. Are you somebody that likes to explore and, and find out where you're playing and, and go and do a bit of sightseeing and have that inquisitive nature? Or are you quite happy just to sit on the beach and, and bide your time? I'm sort of halfway between. I'm not overly adventurous in the sense that I won't do something to say I've done it or seen it. I will only do something if I want to do it. I really love when I go to a place immersing myself in the local culture. So, for example, my brother lived in New York for a while. I've been two or three times. The first time I went, I went and did the Empire State Building and all that stuff. That was great. I much preferred it the second time I went when I was able to just go and sit in a downtown coffee shop and watch the world go by and just just be involved involved in the local culture rather than actually doing all the touristy stuff. And at the same time, I can't lie next to a pool all day. Uh, Those days are gone, that is for sure. As you know, on the at cricket underscore badger Twitter feed, we've been looking for the hashtag goat cricketer, the greatest test match cricketer of all time. We've done the England vote. Congratulations to Sir Ian Botham. We've done the India vote. Congratulations to the little master, Sachin Tendulkar. And we're now turning our attention to the West Indies. Who is the greatest test player of all time to wear the maroon cap? Follow the Cricket Badger on Twitter at cricket underscore badger. Have your say, discuss the issues and have your vote as we find who is the greatest West Indian test cricketer of all time. The top four in each of the votes will also go through to the final, the world's greatest ever test match cricketer. So second, third and fourth place matter too. 
Who is the greatest West Indian Test cricketer of all time? Hashtag Goat Cricketer on Twitter. Follow at cricket underscore badger to have your say and have your vote. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? Um, apart from my nose, probably... You can change your nose amazing if you want cosmetic, to. Amazing what cosmetic surgeons can do these days, isn't it? <laughs> um, now, I probably, I think one thing I'm not very good at is dealing with confrontation. Um, I think I've got better at it the older I've got. Dealing with confrontation, stroke, fear of upsetting people by telling them what I really think. I'd actually try to avoid it. And I think it can hold you back if you're not careful. So it is something I'm working on and I'm getting better at. Um, but yeah, I'd make myself better at dealing with confrontation. What will you be doing in 10 years' time? 2030, Harry Gurney, where are you? Well, I'm ho- I hope that I'll be in the process of selling a group of profitable pubs. I would love to build my pub company up to decent size and then, and then have a sale somewhere between my 40th and 40, 45th birthday, maybe. And then that would allow me to devote sort of my 40s and 50s and beyond to um, maybe a couple of other business ventures, maybe a little bit less hands-on, some charity work, and then... Yeah, I don't know. Work on my golf handicap, I suppose. But that's an ideal scenario. What will I be doing in 10 years? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I, I don't think I will be involved in cricket, but who knows? How hands-on are you with the uh, the tap and run pub? Did you actually go in there and, yeah. and work properly? Or are you just have you appointed a manager and you kind of float around? Yeah, probably the latter, but very hands-on still. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm never there pulling pints, um, but essentially I am the um, the point of contact in terms of the directors, I'm the point of contact for all the members of staff. So the book sort of stops me with me with everything, I guess. So the, the general managers and the head chefs report into me. I chair management meetings. Um, I'm in charge of all the marketing, my wife and I, all the finance. So yeah, really, really hands-on actually. Um, I love it. You know, I don't, it doesn't feel like work. Um, so I'm quite lucky, I guess. Hopefully the pubs end up going on to be really profitable and successful because if they do, I'll have spent all of my working life so far doing something that I've absolutely loved and then I've got something else to now go into which I love as much if not more and I realize how fortunate I am to be in that situation you've got two business partners in in your pub haven't you you've got Stuart Broad who obviously everybody knows is the second highest England test wicket taker of all time I don't imagine he puts yeah. in too many shifts behind the bar no he doesn't um he Broadly does a lot less but you know I think what Broadly brings to the table is well his name essentially well there's a couple of, there's a couple of things profile because all everyone ever says is, you know, this is Stuart Broad's pub, is this Stuart Broad's pub, blah, 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 which is fine by me. That's one of the reasons I'm in business with him. The other thing that Broad has done is put his hand in his pocket, um, which you need to set up a, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's expensive to set up pubs. You know, our, mo- our newest pub, if you like, the Tap and Run has been open 18 months now, but we've spent 350 grand on that and uh, various different modes of finance. But one of them was, uh, was Broadly putting his hand in his pocket. And that's obviously really valuable as well. And your third business partner, I, I, I apologise to him because I can't remember his name, but he, he doesn't, isn't he the landlord of one of the pubs around the Trent Bridge ground? Yeah, so Dan was the general manager of the Larwood and Bose at Trent Bridge. That's a good and, pub, um, It's a great pub. Um, and he was he was general manager there for sort of five or six years, um, became friendly with Brody and I, and that was sort of how it was born, really, a couple of conversations over a beer here and there over the years. And then all of a sudden, my local pub, the Three Crowns, became available, and I had the silly idea of taking it on, and Dan decided he was keen for coming along for the ride and and Brody also came on board and rest history I use that phrase a lot don't I rest history 
Uh, uh, the COVID-19 um, stuff, obviously, we're hoping it doesn't take too long to get back to normality, but it could take a while. The, the pub's going to be okay, is it? You're going to be able to come through the other side of this? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's. Um, I'm trying to use this pandemic as an opportunity to get things in place that we don't have time to do while we're trading. Initially, the first couple of weeks of lockdown were a case of let's secure the future viability of the company via you know, business interruption loans and all these kind of things, which we're fortunate to have been granted one. Now that looks from a financial perspective like we have got that longevity. I'm now busy every day working on things in the background, really. So getting all our processes in place, all our digital assets sorted, working on a bit of branding, all this kind of stuff, so that when we do start trading again, all these things are set up in the background and ready to go, and we are actually better placed to expand as and when we feel ready to. Whereas you do sometimes feel like when you're trading seven days a week, 365 days a year, you do sometimes feel like you uh, you can't get other stuff done because you're so focused on the actual operation on from a day-to-day basis. That's one of the reasons I'm doing quite a few Cricket Badger podcasts at the moment, to try and keep myself current. So when we come out of the other end of this, I've, I've still got a living to to try and uh, fake some way. Um, we, we set, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we set the teaser for question number 20 a few questions ago. So if anybody stayed with us, then uh, we now get the payoff. Question number 20, the final question. And thanks, Harry Gurney, for your time on the podcast today. If you'd been picking these questions, what would you have asked yourself to get a great and exclusive answer? Anyone who follows me on social media will know that I can occasionally be outspoken with regard to where I think the game is going in the future. So if I were you, I would have probably ask me about my views on the future of the game. What are they? I'll just, I'll just tell you before you answer this. I, I set up the At Oppose the 100 Twitter feed. We, we might fall out here, Harry, I think. I've got a funny feeling you might so, go, to go a different route to me. No, no, I don't think we will. What, what Twitter feed did you set up against the 100? Yeah, yeah. I, I, no. I, I worry about the hundred um, because yeah. I, I'm very much for the 18 counties. I, I love four day cricket. I love the red ball stuff. I love the the white ball stuff too. Don't get me wrong. I think that's great. But I, I am quite a traditionalist, and I want four day cricket to flourish. It needs a little bit of imagination, and it needs a bit of a shot in the arm, and it needs looking after. But I, I really want to see that so, carry on. Yeah, and I, I, I think we probably agree on more things than you think. People make assumptions about my views, so they'll see a tweet from me, or even worse some sort of secondary source about something I've said and assume that I'm single-mindedly in love with the 100 or T20 and I hate the longer form of the game or that I'm only prepared to promote formats of the game that benefit me or that I'm good enough to play because I know that I was never good enough to play test cricket. But none of those things are, are true anyway. You know, I love all forms of the game. Test cricket's an amazing institution, as is the county championship. There's nothing really that can rival, I don't think, the nostalgia of, you know, going to Trent Bridge on a sunny day at a test match or you know, Lords or any of the venues, really. The ebb and flow of the day, having a few beers in the sun with your friends, um, the whole show that's put on Jerusalem, it's amazing. And also difficult, really, in any other sport anywhere to replicate the final couple of hours of, say, the Headingley Test this summer or Edgebaston in 2005, to give a couple of examples. And I was, just like everyone else, sat on the edge of my seat watching live on TV on both occasions. So that's me, I guess, saying my bit about people assume that I hate the longer forms of the game I don't at all I, I love them I, I grew up on them you know I, was, I can remember sitting up watching England play in the subcontinent in Australia in all hours of the night as a kid so that's that but classic tests like the ones that I've just mentioned are famed for their last hour or two it's taken five days to arrive at that point and they happen once every few years and I think we live in a world now of immediacy shorter formats such as T20 they produce those thrilling climaxes more regularly and fewer hours are required by the viewers to arrive at that point 
There's also the fact that Ricky Ponting said the other day, I saw an article, um, I think it was on Crick Info, where T20 actually has more strategy involved in it than the longest form. And I think that strategy side of things captures the imagination of young viewers as well in the way that maybe the grind of a four or five day game doesn't. Whenever I, I stick the TV on these days and obviously outside of lockdown, there's a test match on. Outside of England and Australia, you often don't see a big crowd. In fact, you often don't see many people at all. And even tests in England and Australia sometimes struggle to sell out. You know, Durham only know too well from, from there. Was it Sri Lanka test match they had in May one year, which really cost them. I think the recent series in South Africa was another good example when England went over there. And the test matches, the grounds were um, full of English tourists, but not many locals. And then as soon as the white ball came out, the, the grounds were full of locals. And ultimately, I think the future of the game whether we like it or not, will be dictated by commercial viability. Big people flock to grounds to watch domestic cricket. Now, I went to the CPL this year, the Caribbean Premier League, and they're filling grounds over there, and it's a real carnival culture. That's the sort of crowd I've not really seen for decades over there, other than, again, when England saw. And the IPL, BBL, PSL, many more have done the same. You know, the blast even in England, from what I read, it's the most likely of all the domestic competitions to go ahead this year. You know, these formats have filled out, filled out cricket grounds around the world again. I think I read the other day the IPL is the sixth most watched league of all sports in the world and receives as much revenue per game almost as the English Premier League, which blew my mind when I read it. And the other thing about the IPL, there was a Telegraph article last year which really struck a chord with me. It said that when Virat Kohli scores a 50 in an IPL game, there are 10 times more impressions on social media than when he does so in a test. And I think we're in the middle of a bit of a digital revolution at the moment. And whether we like it or not, I think today's social media users, people on you know, sitting on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are the current and future consumers of cricket. So that sort of tells me where I think the game is going. I think sometimes in England, we can be a little bit blind to the reality because it is so viable and valuable here in this country. You know, we still fill grounds. Sky still pay a lot of money to watch test matches. I think that can sometimes blind us. I think, and this is a bit you probably won't like, I think um, that it's inevitable that test cricket, certainly as we know it, and therefore probably the county championship, will disappear probably sooner than, than people think. But the one I'm rambling, the last thing I'll say is, you know, contrary to probably what people think or assume from listening to me talk like this or reading my tweets, I don't want that to happen. I don't hope it happens. I just think it's going to. And yes, it's sad, but I'm a pragmatist and I'm an optimist and, and I think the future's bright and exciting and I think you know, life goes on. I think that's a really good answer. And I, I don't disagree with too much of it, to be honest. Um, I don't think we actually are too far apart. What I would come back with, if I may, you, you, yeah. you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, exciting test matches are few and far between and the Ben Stokes kind of days are, are very rare. But I, I always use the analogy that a T20 is more like an advert on television. A 50-over mm. game is more like your hour-long drama on television and your test mm. match is more like your feature film. And I mm. think you remember fantastic feature films, The Godfather, Shawshank Redemption, whatever your, your taste in feature films is, far longer than you might remember a, a good advert on the TV. You might talk about a great advert, the monkey in the PG Tips advert, or something that will tickle your fancy for a day or two in the office or, or whatever. But I think they're, they're far more throwaway. Your T20s, with all due respect, are far more throwaway than your test matches. People who were at mm. Headingley that day 
will remember mm. that day for the rest of their lives. Everybody that was tuning yeah. into that will remember it for the rest of their lives. The, the sways of emotion that you get in a five-day test match, even if it's a what you, what you might class as a, as a boring test match, are still far, yeah. far stronger. You'll get one team on top, the other team fights back. You'll get moments of drama. You'll get then moments an hour maybe of very sort of stoic cricket, but then it'll start to bounce back again. Whereas I think a T20 yeah. is much more kind of like bite-sized mealy. It's more like your Big Mac. Yeah. It's not your fillet steak. Yeah, 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 I would agree. Yeah, I think I think the great test matches are more memorable. Those two I mentioned particularly stick out in my mind. Um, I mean, there were others in 2005 as well, weren't there? What series that was? But yeah, I would agree. An epic, an epic test match lives longer, longer than memory. I would agree with that. I, I think, Harry, there's, a, that, there's a lot of people out there that love the county championship and love test match cricket. And it's how cricket gets them involved they might not buy a ticket they might not go to the ground but they still care and they still want to follow the scores on i was going to say cfax but that shows my age on on crick info or something yeah. like that and i i think it's how you kind of you know for one of a better phrase in business monetize that crowd of people they might not come to the ground but they might still want to buy shirts they might want to still buy some kind of membership which allows them to get into a, a few games mm. in a year and i think cricket needs to use a bit more imagination when it comes to the longer form and, and maybe market it a lot better than it has done yeah yeah, I mean, you're probably right, and and it would be wise for them to do that because, like I say, I talk a lot about commercial viability. People say, oh, it's not all about money, and it sort of almost is entirely about that, really, because it, you know, the, the money that the game generates at the top level has to trickle down all the way through to grassroots. I think, yeah, I think I think you could be right, and I think maybe, you know, we've got a generation of baby boomers. My dad's one of them who love the longer form of the game, and there are a lot of baby boomers, and they're all sort of retirement age now with time on their hands. So that is a market really that, that, that they could go after. But at the same time, you want these younger generations to love it as well. And that is that is where at the moment I think it's falling down. And that is where I, that is why I think the future of it looks shaky. It's always quite an easy thing to say, well, you know, it's all grey-haired people. It's one man and his dog at a county game and stuff. But there are, like you say, the 50-odd-year-olds at the moment who will take their place at some stage in the future and those seats will be taken by other people. But I, I don't think we're actually, yeah. we're, we're actually too far away from agreeing on this, are we? So it's, uh, it's not no. the confrontation that I was anticipating at the end. But Harry Gurney, <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Cricket Badger podcast today. It's been brilliant. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's that Badger style. Thank you so much to Harry Gurney for joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast today. Hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to him. I was very surprised actually with how much we were in agreement about the future of cricket. I think we're both concerned about the future of four-day and five-day cricket in this country and around the globe. The only thing I would add to what I said to Harry, as a governing body of cricket, you're a custodian. You are the person that is in charge of trying to keep it healthy, make money and entertain. And they have massive marketing budgets. They've spent a fortune on the 100. It's a competition I don't think we need. I don't think we need a fourth format. I think T20 is fine. I love T20 cricket, but I love four-day cricket and I love test matches too. I would imagine of marketing budgets around the globe, a massive percentage is spent on telling people how wonderful and exciting and marvellous the T20 competitions are. We know that in England, a huge amount of money has been put into, I would say, quite terrible marketing of the hundred. All I would ask is that there's a little bit of parity. If you tell everybody that one competition's massively exciting and almost ignore telling everybody else that four-day cricket in the championship can be exciting or is worthwhile, then what do you expect? You're going to get ticket sales for T20 competitions. 
and you're going to get people ignoring the stuff that you're not telling them about. It's always been a problem getting bums on seats at Championship cricket. That's not beyond debate. But those 18 counties have provided England players. Harry came initially from Leicestershire, which is one of the counties which will always suggest a surplus to requirements if we're going to cull the 18. They've all provided a huge amount to the rich fabric of county cricket and English cricket. They need supporting. They need publicising. They need their championship cricket publicising. So my appeal would be to the ECB and to the other governing bodies around the world, yes, tell people how fantastic T20 cricket is. Market those tickets. Add the razzmatazz. Make those tournaments brilliant. But also tell people that four-day championship cricket is well worth going to as well. We hardly ever find out about it. It's people like me and you who are fans of four-day cricket, who go along and are excited by it, and the rest of the population just drifts past because they hardly know those games are on. So if you're serious about the future of the hashtag cricket family ECB, and if you are serious about keeping 18 counties going, stick your money where your mouth is. I know that money is few and far between at the moment, and there are plenty of other things to think about. But when we get back on our feet, get a big chunk of that marketing budget, tell people when games are, and tell people how satisfying and how brilliant county championship cricket can be. Make it possible for people to buy into cricket from their own bedrooms, their own living rooms, their own office space. Use a little bit of lateral thinking. Use a little bit of that marketing budget to tell people how much they can get from a county championship game. There are ways of making people who love county championship cricket happy and still trying to get the new audience that they're trying to get into the 100. Well, we can get a new audience into the championship too. It's not exclusive. They all run along together. And I think Harry is quite right that four-day cricket and five-day cricket is under threat. I think 18 counties is under threat. And I think cricket needs to do something about it. Take it seriously and not just tell everybody, attend T20 matches. Tell people to attend championship matches too and give them a reason to. Anyway, that's enough of me ranting on at the end of this Cricket Badger podcast. I really enjoyed the chat with Harry Gurney today and I hope that him and Stuart and Dan and the Tap and Run survive COVID-19 and come out at the end of it stronger and better for it. And I hope that we are all here to support them and other restaurants and pubs and theatres and concert halls around the country. And when this is all over, Badges, we'll be the first ones there at the door of the Tap and Run pub and it's like around the country. Ordering a pint, saying hello to each other, enjoying a chat, socialising again and supporting those businesses that have really struggled through the months of coronavirus. Thanks again to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Give them a follow at tvsportsblog on Twitter. And thanks to you for listening. It is really appreciated and your comments have been really nice over the last few weeks as I've been churning out the Cricket Badger podcast to keep myself sane. Stay tuned. Loads of great guests coming up over the next few weeks as well. Please like, subscribe, leave a nice comment on whatever podcast platform that you listen to the Cricket Badger podcast on. Until we meet again, Badgers, stay safe, look after each other, stay healthy. And I'll see you next time on the Cricket Badger podcast. Podcast Network.